Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guests are Oliver Davis and Tim Dean, and they are the authors of the book Hatred of Sex, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2022. I'd like to take a moment to introduce my guests. Oliver Davis is a professor of French studies at the University of Warwick. He's the author of Jacques Rancier and editor of Rancier Now. And Tendine is James N. Benson, professor in English at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He's also author of the book Unlimited Intimacy, Reflections on the Subculture of Barebacking and Beyond Sexuality. Oliver, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Eugenio. Thanks, thanks so much for this opportunity to uh, to talk about our book with with you and your your listeners. It's my pleasure. I, I first of all want to congratulate you on the book, and I want to know how you feel now that it's done and it's out. It, it seems like a miracle to me that it is done and out. Maybe because that's how one feels about every book that one manages to finish and publish, but. This was certainly the first time I had written a book with with anybody. And when Oliver and I sort of hatched the idea over, over a drunken dinner in at Warwick University in 2013, and we sort of came up with the title, Hatred of Sex, I knew the moment that we came up with that title that we had to write the book because we had a great title. Um, but it's never clear to me the one the good ideas come to fruition. This one somehow did, which is, which has taught me something about uh, collaboration and the process of collaboration. And um, Oliver has been a pleasure to work with, and I have learned a lot. And I'm, I'm continued to marvel that we managed to pull this off. So maybe I'll direct this to you, Oliver. To follow up on what Tim is saying, he said the the title came first. But how, as as a question about your creative process, how does that work? Like, how did you come up with the title? Did you did you when you came up with the title, did you know what you wanted to write about? Um, I would say, um, you know, the, the the title is 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 inspired really by Jacques Rancière, who, whom you mentioned uh, by by his book uh, Hatred of of Democracy. Um, and in a way, we, we kind of borrow and adapt and displace and uh, reconfigure the, the conceptual problematic in, in that book that, that perhaps we'll 
have a chance to, to talk about later. Um, so we, we came up with the title, but we'd also had a number of discussions over the years um, prior to that uh, that drunken dinner that, that, that Tim mentions um, a few years ago, um, in which we talked about uh, our views on on sexual intimacy, speaking really as as, as people who uh, um, identify as as gay men um, and who uh, have worked in the areas of, of queer theory and uh, and philosophy and and and. To some extent, Tim, more than much more than than, than me in in psychoanalysis as well. So, so what is this book about? You know, I think to sort of follow up on what Oliver has just said, what, as I was reading Rancière and struggling to really reading Rancière in translation and struggling to get a handle on it and wanting to learn from Oliver about Rancière, I was also seeing tremendous affinities between Rancière's political philosophy of democracy and equality and my understanding of psychoanalysis, particularly as it is inflected through the French psychoanalyst Jean Laplanche. And so even though Rancière himself, I think, is either indifferent to or maybe hostile to psychoanalysis, I was seeing these affinities between the way Rancière conceptualizes the political and how I think about sexuality, that I thought we could actually bring those two things, those two discourses together, um, irrespective of and this was not my worry, it may have been Oliver's, but irrespective of how Rancière himself might feel about um, being sort of appropriated for queer theory and being connected to, linked to, redescribed in terms of psychoanalytic concepts. Um, so we, we bring those two things together and um, trying to use the idea of the psych psychoanalytic ideas about sex in a context in which it seems to me everybody talks about sex, but people don't, including in psychoanalysis, always talk about, don't necessarily acknowledge the difficulty of sexuality, what makes it disturbing, what makes it unsettling, what makes it overwhelming, what makes it unpleasurable as well as pleasurable. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, so you're, you're borrowing a little bit drawing some inspiration from Ranciere's analysis about democracy. His, his book is aptly titled, like yours, Hatred of Democracy. I, I don't want to detract from your ideas, but because Ranciere's so central uh, to your thinking, what, why does he think that, or how does he believe that we hate democracy? And how does that map onto the ways that you think we hate sex? Sure. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, I, I mean, I think um, uh, both sex uh, and democracy are, are messy, uh, disordering, uh, and that's the kind of point of similarity that we that we depart from. Um, and, and so, in in hatred of democracy, Rancière. Um, analyzes critically a lot of the detractors of the democratic system that, that had sprung up in France around the, the turn of this this century, uh, you know, for whom democracy was a kind of um, a, a, a disorderly uh, mess, essentially, not the most efficient way uh, to, to govern a society. 
uh, and Rancière really take, takes those criticisms and, and says that, well, they, they, they go back as far as the, the origins of democracy itself uh, in the, the, the Athenian city-states, in, sorry, in the, in the Greek city-states. Um, and so hating democracy and actually existing democracies have been kind of intertwined uh, as long as democracy has been a kind of system of, of rule. And that was really the, the, the point of departure. Um, and, and, in, and in functioning democracies, then there, there is always an attempt to kind of uh, sort of suppress uh, the kind of unruliness of, of democracies. So, I mean, in, in Rancière's analysis, you know, liberal democracies today would be a kind of um, a sort of semi-suppressed uh, form of that originary uh, disorderliness. Um, you know, because in ancient, in democracy in, in, in ancient Greece, um, what, what happened then was that that, that people who had no kind of particular training or um, expertise or entitlement or or status or rank to, to govern, nevertheless governed and, and took turns to, to govern. Um, uh, uh, and so there is something kind of, from a sort of sociological perspective, if you like, there's something very disturbing, very messy about about democracy. And, and, and we felt on the basis of those, those conversations that we'd had that, that there was something sort of relevantly similar there about about sex and the way that sex is is hated it's it's disordering effects on on identity and on um on 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 secure established social relationships are there was a similarity there that we wanted to to draw out i'd like to give our listeners a a, a taste of your writing and read from a passage read a passage from your book that I think captures what you're talking about. You say on page 15, if Rancière, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, <laughs> uh, if Rancière claims that contempt for democracy is built into democracy as the government of those who are not entitled to govern, then we claim that antipathy towards sex subtends even the unmistakable joys of sex. The problem is internal to sex as it is to democracy and therefore cannot legitimately be glossed over by treating it as a contingent defect in an otherwise functional system. I think what you're saying here, but tell me if I'm wrong, is that this is not just an accident or uh, some sort of unfortunate side effect of sex or of democracy, that that it is a necessary part of how sex works. But, but can you talk about that? Do, am I getting close? I think you're getting it exactly. I think you're hitting the nail on the head, Eugenio. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think when Oliver was uh, re re when all when Oliver was glossing Rancière about democracy and said that the actually existing democracies, the democracies we have today barely just suppress the unruliness of democracy in its original state. When I read something like that, what I hear is, it sounds very Freudian to me, right? That is um, sexual orientation, sexual identity, all the polite ways we talk about sex suppress the unruliness of sex. And the ways in which it disorders us, and therefore it is something integral to sex from a psychoanalytic point of view, 
that is entirely analogous to in our thinking what is the unruliness that is integral to democracy and can't simply be fixed. It can't simply be corrected by some ideal arrangement that we would like to come up with but have not yet come up with. That, that, that's sort of never going, never going to happen. And so I think you, you put it, you, you, you got it exactly. Oliver, can you follow up on that and talk about what, what is the unruliness of sex? I mean, how does it disorder us? What, what are you talking about there? Oh, oh, well, I mean, if you think just about the way in which sexual fantasy, sexual thoughts uh, colonize attentional space, I mean, that is a very, a very direct way in which uh, uh, sex kind of disorders the ways in which we like to kind of lead our lives in planned and and organized uh, ways. Um, and that's a very, in a way, <laughs> I mean, it's not a very, it's not a very dramatic kind of disordering that, that one, but there are obviously more, more dramatic forms of disorder that, uh, that, that, that sex can be, can be associated with. Mm-hmm. There's another quote from your book that I, that I want to read and have you comment on. It's on the next, on two pages later on page 17, you say, at the root of hatred of sex lies the problem of a pleasure. What do, what do you mean by that? How how could pleasure be involved in our hatred of sex? That's a great question, Eugenio, and I appreciate your 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 opening these questions to us. Um, I think what we mean by that we are talking about um, the different ways that pleasure functions for human subjects, and the way the pleasure can become excessive and overwhelming and tip over quite easily into something that is unpleasurable, painful, distressing, unsettling, etc. When we often when we talk or think about pleasure, we simply think we want more of it, different forms, different partners, different slices of cake. Um, Oliver and I are both British, and we were talking yesterday on the phone about cake, um, and I was longing for some English cake. Um, that is, we think of pleasure as something straightforward that we simply need to access, and that the difficulty lies in not being able to access it or enough of it. What we are trying to point out is something different, which is the difficulty of pleasure lies in the ways in which it can be actually overwhelming and much of our lives are dedicated to um, organizing things so we don't get overwhelmed by pleasure we don't have too much of it Um, we don't get unsettled dysregulated disorganized by it one of the points that helped me understand your argument is the distinction you made between sexuality and eros can can you explain Sure. In in making that distinction, we are drawing on, you know, we're drawing on the work of Jean Laplanche and particularly his emphasis on the Freudian distinction between binding psychical energy and the unbinding of it. And he says his his argument is that um, sexuality is hostile to binding. That is, sexuality that is most intense is what unbinds, what shatters, what perturbs the self. Eros, and this is he takes it directly from Freud, Eros is what binds things together. Eros is the idealizing, uh, loving version of sex. 
sex, sex, and therefore sex and eros are not really synonyms for each other, even though I think in my own previous work, I've treated them as if they were, um, they're actually more like antonyms or, or the antitheses of each other. And that is, I think, the key, the key idea that I have drawn from the work of Jean Laplanche. It has been very helpful to me. So um, I think we have a tendency, including in academic culture, to speak about the erotic, and it's we sort of use it as a kind of a euphemism. You know, it's a it's a polite way of talking about really intense and difficult aspects of sexuality that actually nobody is, is in a position to to master. Mm-hmm. And, and Oliver, following up on that, I mean. Are you, is the point of your book to shine a light on a dimension of sex, the, the unbinding, destabilizing aspects of sex? That because you you feel that these this dimension has been ignored. In other words, like what? Why should why should anyone become be interested in that dimension of sex? You know, why would anyone if if there are parts of sex that are unbinding and destabilizing? Why not try to keep sex tame and safe? I think that is what our culture tries to to do: is to to keep sex tame and safe, and increasingly to to manage it into uh, kind of corners of 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 enjoyment that 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 that, that tend to kind of eclipse that 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 potential for 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 radical unbinding. So, um, I mean, I. Uh, the, the part of the book that is is the argument about uh, a certain kind of trauma trauma therapy, for instance, you know, is is in a way is is a kind of argument about the kind of the overspill from uh, you know the justifiable um, attention that is now drawn to to sexual abuse. You know, something that wouldn't would have surprised uh, commentators in the nineteen seventies. You know, the extent of of sexual abuse but the problem the problem that we kind of identify is is that that sort of that justified attention and that these new forms of clinical practice that that develop to to address it uh, kind of overspills and has kind of cumulatively these these kind of toxic cultural effects uh which which serve to to make to make sex a kind of a dangerous thing that we that we fear we fear for its risk and its danger and we we seek to to manage and um uh, I, I, I really have become unable to enjoy because the, the the air is so has become so so stifling around these kinds of uh, mm-hmm. topics. Tim, can you elaborate on on how you see current trends in therapy for treating trauma? How how they're doing what Oliver is talking about? You know how they're creating a kind of paranoia or un, un, undue fear around sex. That's a great question. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I need to just um, say for your audience that Oliver and I are not clinicians. You are, but, but we are not. Um, I, I have a lot of clinical experience as a, as, a, as a patient. I've done long-term psychoanalysis. I've done therapy. I've done all sorts of things. Um, but, uh, but I think I, I hear what you're asking. Um, I think that I would say that modes of psychotherapeutic treatment and psychoanalytic and psychotherapeutic institutions are obviously influenced by, because they are open to the culture in which they exist, 
And within that culture, there is a very quick and easy move, which I think Oliver was using the term overspill for, um, in which the way in which sexual pleasure can violate the self, can violate the integrity of the self, is translated into that must mean somebody was abused. That must mean actually somebody's being harmed, that, that the pleasure is coming at somebody else's expense and we need to intervene in some way. And I, I think that, that what that misses, and what our book is trying to sort of put its finger on or lay out or draw attention to, shine a light on, is the, the difficulty of sex is not simply the result of patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, all the forms of oppression with which we are all too familiar, but it's in fact there's, there's a difficulty within sex itself and it doesn't help to simply recode that as abuse, right? The, the feeling of, and this is, I, I know this is a controversial or provocative thing to say, the feeling of being violated in sex does not always mean you have been violated by somebody else. And correct me if I'm wrong. First of all, I I, I appreciate that you appreciate how how delicate this is, and I and I I'm very clear that from from reading your book cover to cover that you're not trying to to dismiss or minimize people's experiences of abuse, but it, it does seem to me like you're trying to invite people to consider that maybe. The experiences of being a feeling violated or intruded upon or out of control are are part of what makes sex sex. Am, am I hearing it right? That's that's exactly right. Um, and if if I may, I mean, I could just perhaps add a little bit about um, the, the critique in the book about uh, of, of Judith Herman and her particular practice of. Of, of trauma-focused uh, therapy, so we, we we read very closely uh, trauma and recovery in the in, in the fourth chapter of the of, of the book, and um, this is obviously the, the kind of classic sort of handbook or textbook for this kind of uh, trauma-focused therapy. Um, and what we identify there is a is a very um, a clear kind of line of uh, persuasion and, and suggestion in the book, encouraging the. The trauma therapist to 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 to, dig, to really to dig around in the in the, the childhood particularly of, of of patients and and to to kind of find evidence for for abuse even when it's not kind of immediately presenting itself in in the session um, and we, we trace this kind of line of of, of suggestion and, and we and we we just seek to kind of understand it really and to to to, to acknowledge that it's it's present in in that book and in the the whole real uh, really the whole approach to uh, trauma focused therapy that that book has has inspired and and we just think that I think that a kind of a set of claims have been made about about the kind of uh, the centrality of of, of traumatic experience uh, in, in individuals' lives and and uh, which reflects a kind of cultural preoccupation with, with with trauma that are actually in their kind of wider effects really really problematic and probably also in their actually in their individual effects are, are, are problematic um, not necessarily the the best thing to do actually for for a traumatized uh, patient to to get them to fixate on their on on their trauma uh, as a kind of source of 
traumatized identity. I think that is a that is a problem that we seek to kind of um, analyze and uh, uh, unpick a little bit in the in, in the book. I think this might be a good time to bring into the conversation a figure who a person who figures very prominently in your book and who we lost earlier this year and who prior to this interview, Tim was kind enough to, to uh, share with me some of his write, his own writing about this figure and his, of course, Leo Bersani. Um, for our listeners who don't know who he is, could you tell us briefly who he is and, and how does he contribute to this conversation? Leo Bersani was was a friend of Michel Foucault, a friend of Jacques Derrida. He was a professor of French at Berkeley for many years, a professor of French like like Oliver. Um, And Leo happened to also become a very dear and close friend of mine. The, The way he's important for our book is essentially his famous essay from 1987, which was coming out of the AIDS crisis, the essay is the rectum a grave, and the the famous first line, the opening line of that book, uh, sorry, the opening line of that essay, there is a big secret about sex. Most people don't like it, and part of what we have done or what trying to do in in our book is elaborate Leo Bassani's insight for a different historical moment, and I think by by thinking through the work of Jacques Rancière, which was a French philosopher whom Leo did not really engage in his career, um, we've, we were able to think about the politics of sex in a different way than Bassani did. But he's very much an influence on, on the book and has, has been for many years an influence on my thinking. Um, and... Uh, you know, he died, I think, in February, and I miss him terribly. <laughs> but but he lived, sorry, he lived He lived to 90, he wrote many books, he had a good life, he had a long career. How do you understand that opening line that you just shared with us? I mean, I understand it in part through uh, Bassani's, Bassani's use of La Planche, right? And Bassani translates Laplanche's concept of Ebron Le Mans, and I apologize also for my French pronunciation. Um, he translates it as shattering, and he makes an argument around people don't like sex because sex is what shatters the self. And sex, in, in the terms that we develop, sex is what brings out the deplorable part of ourselves. Right, and we 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 also draw on. We make something of Hillary Clinton's 2016 speech, where she talked about Trump supporters as the basket of deplorables, of what it means to cast a certain um, proportion of the populace as deplorable, and we try to turn that to show the ways in which. What sex brings out is the deplorable in all of us, but of course we also have a whole set of defense mechanisms for not recognizing that or coming to terms of that. And one of those defense mechanisms is to say there's other people who are deplorable, not us, to always other that that side of ourselves. So 
um, we draw those things together, and Bassani was was very helpful for that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I enjoy or, or appreciate most about your book is the way that you address certain kinds of, um, for lack of a better term, cultural products, and 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 show the ways in which those cultural products actually participate in the hatred of sex and. We're not going to be able to cover all of them now, um, but, w- but one that I want to get to because I think it's kind of ironic is queer theory. Um, you address how, how queer theory seems to have this selective paradoxical inattention to sex. That they, that something, so it's something they don't really address. What's up with that? And how do you understand the way that that contributes to hatred of sex? I, you know, we, we do argue that queer, queer theory and queer studies actually instantiate and exemplify the hatred of sex we're talking about. The field, the field begins with attention to sex and Gail Rubin saying the time has come to think about sex. And then what we try to trace is all the ways in which queer theory has sort of forgotten about sex. In part, in part I think that's a process of the that's an effect of is a consequence of the institutionalization of um, a body of work within the university in which in order for something to become intelligible within the structures of the university it needs to be minimally respectable and the, the deplorable is never respectable right is the it is the antithesis of what is respectable and so in becoming a discipline and becoming a very politically oriented discipline queer studies has actually left behind what is most troubling deplorable unsettling and and that is sex um oliver do you care to to follow up on that yeah, I, I would say I, I agree very much with Tim that, that, that it's partly a product of queer theories um, growing um, institutional prestige, if I can use that term. Um, it's partly, I think, also the influence of a certain kind of sociological or sociologistic uh, thinking within within queer theory. So um, the, the discussion in the book about intersectionality um um, you know, it's a very critical discussion of the, the prominence of, of intersectionality, and it's and it's um, it's absolutely not that we are unsympathetic to the kind of the aims that the people who want to talk about intersectionality want to pursue. We we share those we share those values, if you like, but we just think that um, trying to understand uh, people and their behaviours and their views in terms of their their sociological position and identity, the characteristics that you add together to to, to, to analyze somebody or a population sociologically is not a very not a very instructive way to proceed and and I suppose there is that so that we're trying to bring a kind of critique of, of sociologism uh, to to queer theory uh, much as, as Rancière in, in, in his philosophical work in uh, the 1990s especially was was very critical of of, of the, the the prominence of identitarian thinking in the work of of Pierre Bourdieu, who was a very influential leading uh, French sociologist. So there is we're trying to carry that kind of critique of of the sort of sociologism inherent in in sort of intersectionality, which has really I think kind of taken over kind of queer theory. Really, um, we're, we're trying to bring that uh, up to the present to the present moment to reconnect with 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 Lancier's work by. 
sociologism, um, are you referring to our, our present day tendency to think of ourselves in terms of the identity categories that we belong to? I'm a, I'm a gay man. I'm a white man. I'm a Cuban American man. I'm, um, I'm a first generation American. Is that what you're talking about? All of the, and all of those all of those determinants all of those characteristics are important and they're all part of what what make up our kind of facticity our, 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 our being in the world but there are there are other dimensions as well and, and purely to kind of understand people in within the, those terms and to if you like to sort of hear what they say um, in accordance with our presuppositions based on our knowledge of their their, their particular characteristics in those terms is is I think it's a very limiting. Uh, way of interacting with people that's 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 been my experience anyway Tim I'd like I'd like to follow up with you and take this further because look we're in a moment where we all know that at least in the queer community lots lots of people are claiming their power trying to find some power through their identities and feel like they 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 need those identities um, in order to have that power and that and that visibility. And yet I appreciate the point that you're making that something gets, something can get lost when we engage in those identitarian politics. Can, Tim, can you explain what it is? I mean, what, what is there to lose? I think there's a lot to lose. I, you know, I, I feel most, the part of the book that I feel most strongly about is the critique of identity. I totally, I, I share your, your view Eugenio, of how queer people are thinking. Um, that is, I think they we are thinking that way. I think it's a terrible trap. I think it's a terrible mistake. I think identity is imprisoning. I do not think it's liberating. I think I, identity is identity puts up the guardrails. It puts up barriers to making connections psychologically subjectivity subjectively it it puts up barriers to discovering unexpected and surprising parts of oneself probably the most troubling parts of oneself um i would describe identity as a culturally sanctioned defense mechanism and i think psychoanalytically psychotherapeutically the solution to defense mechanisms is not to multiply them Right? It's not to keep generating more and more and more specific identities or defense mechanisms. It's to s- step away from that mode of being in the world, which is about establishing yourself through an identity that is, in fact, a defense against otherness, alterity, including and especially one's own otherness and alterity. So I think that a tremendous amount is lost in this quest for for one's own authentic identity or one's own authentic group identity. Uh, I think it's how neoliberal power uh, uses people, it's how things are sold to us through our identities. I understand that people think it's liberating or empowering. I, I just, the book makes a different argument. The book makes a counter argument. And Identity is always a defense against sex because sex is unbinding, unsettling, whereas identity is always a form of binding, a form of defining, putting boundaries around things, making something coherent and and intelligible. And I, like everybody else, (laughs) 
need to live my life through a certain level of coherence, a certain level of being intelligible to myself, but that is always militating against the 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 tremendous power of sexuality and sex to to unbind, to unsettle, to challenge who we think we are. I I want to I want to stay with this a moment longer because I got to tell you it's also for me one of the most thought provoking parts of the book, um, and I want to see if we can understand what at the level of day-to-day experience what this looks like on the phenomenological level like because i've thought about it you know but if, if i move through the world identifying as as a gay man a cisgender gay man what what am i missing out on how 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 or what do you think i am defending myself against um and this is to to oliver orton well let me just say eugenio um you know, I, it's, it's a wonderful paradox here. You, the, the psychotherapist is asking us what he might be defending himself against. And this is a weird turning of the tables that I was not really, I'm not really qualified to handle. And, but um, I, I guess, I guess I would also, I mean, I would, I would say um, I routinely forget that I am a gay man, that I identify. Again, routinely, yes, yes. Um, I guess it means I just don't identify with a category very strongly, um, not because I'm um, lusting after women, but I just don't. It just seems to me a kind of artificial and actually very limiting kind of category. Um, how can one be so sure that that is all one is interested in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oliver, did you care to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose just thinking, thinking back to kind of Freud's notion of originary bisexuality, for example, um, uh, you know, that the, the, so there would be ways of identifying as a cisgender gay man that wouldn't be kind of limiting, I think, um, that wouldn't be closing down, but but there would also be ways of identifying as a as a cisgender gay man that that, that would be, um, for instance, you know, if if one therefore kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, certain kinds of places were the kinds of places I should go and certain kinds of people were the kind of places I, people I should hang out with. And, and indeed, certain kinds of people uh, are the kinds of people I should I should fantasize about sexually. So I think that there is a kind of, there is a tendency, I think, socially today, generally, not just in the field of sex, but to, 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 to pigeonhole ourselves very, very precisely in a very, very restrictive uh, way and, and and as Tim was saying, I mean neoliberalism exploits that the kind of the sort of the techniques of neoliberalism, uh, the way in which kind of data data driven bureaucracies seek to kind of manage us and manage our preferences and our uh, manipulate us to to think and vote in in particular ways. You know the the hooks for those machines are all identitarian, <laughs> um, and in that sense, I think identity is uh, is, is 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 a problem. But I mean. You know, we all have we all have identities. We all have identity characteristics, and and there's no there's no pretending otherwise. Um, but I think I think there are more or less phenomenologically more or less limiting ways to um, to, to to approach uh, identity. So perhaps I might not go as quite as far as Tim um, in seeing identity as always as always um, um, uh, problematic. Um, but but I, 
certainly certainly the argument in the book that we make together is that is that it's much more problematic than it seems to be for for queer theory today and a lot of politics beyond queer theory today and let me just add to what Oliver has said. I think that what you what you see from our different answers there, Eugenio, is that although we Oliver and I think similarly in lots of ways, we don't we don't agree with each other exactly on everything, which I think has been part of the um, pleasure and the process of the book. We have not staged a debate, although we we could have. Um, but we've also we've also not thought it was important to simply um, agree with and identify with each other completely in order to to produce something together. Mm-hmm. But and and yet you manage, or so I think, to write this book and to speak as though in one voice. How how did you manage that? What was your process like? It's a wonderful illusion, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the illusion of binding. I mean, I think the conversations that we, 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 we've talked about, that we had, we've had over the years prior to kind of saying, okay, we're going to write this, this book together, um, you know, which were quite wide-ranging conversations about sex and sexuality and queer theory and, and, and all sorts of other things. Um, that helped to kind of establish that we had a kind of, a, a pretty aligned way of, of thinking about these the, the key the key questions uh, and that was sufficiently different from what other people seem to be kind of thinking on these on these topics to merit maybe maybe trying to to write about together i mean and then when we you know the kind of creative process we um uh you know we did a lot of kind of reading of each other's uh, uh work and, and kind of editing and and, and it, you know it's a uh, it's, uh, we didn't sit down and write absolutely every sentence uh, together. That would think would have been excruciating for both of us. But uh, I think it is. It's genuinely a, a, a common common project. You know, we we live in different countries. We live six six or seven time zones apart. I'm originally from Britain, but I, you know, I've this is the first time I've seen Oliver in a couple of years, you know, and I've not been back to Britain in several years, in part because of the pandemic. So we have we have also done this at a distance in a way that surprisingly, delightfully has, has worked. You you wrote this book without seeing each other in person? Well, as Oliver said, we, we spent a lot of time together when I was visiting Britain on various occasions where we would get together and I just have to say, you know, um, lubricated by like significant amounts of alcohol in the, in the great British way. You know, we had a lot of conversations um, and we made a lot of notes and we, we exchanged a lot of, we read a lot of each other's work, as Oliver says. Um, but then, when we actually were doing the writing, we were mostly at a distance. Wow! Wow, that's amazing. You know, I, I know I've taken a lot away from the book, but if there is one thing that each of you hopes that readers will take away from it, what is that? We'll start with you, Oliver. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think psychoanalysis in the in, in the proper sense, um, you know, Freudian, Kleinian, Lacanian, Laplanchian psychoanalysis. In, in, in those traditions, it, it's always taught us that sex is, um, is inherently complex and unsettling and disordering. Um, you know, we shouldn't expect sex to be, to be stabilised into, into security, and we shouldn't expect from, 
from sexual relationships, something that that, that secures us and our our, our identities. Um, I, I think um, you know we turned into inadvertently really quite a sex hating culture, um, and I'm hoping that's a a temporary impasse, uh, and I'm hoping that this book will, will help lead us out of it. I suppose, you know, I suppose I, I think that we, our, we live in a culture that is tremendously schizophrenic about sex, that uses sex to sell things, that places an extraordinary premium on sexual satisfaction, on sex as the source of relationship, uh, the source of happiness, uh, the source of meaning in one's life, at the same time as the culture is also um, ex- increasingly keen to control the messiness and the, dis- the disordering capacities of sex. And I think the recent Supreme Court decision, the anti-abortion one, um, is one more sign of a culture that actually hates sex in the sense that it wants to control women's bodies, it wants to control how sex works, it wants to get all the messiness, the mistakes out out of sex. So there's a kind of there's a kind of cultural schizophrenia, if that's not a misuse of that term, about, about sex. And our I hope that what people might take from the book is is a, is a deeper understanding of of why that is so where where that comes from if not how to solve it mm-hmm. and, and my hope is that and i'm thinking i'm on, on more the individual level this is my specialty as a as an analyst um my hope is that readers will after reading this book they'll they'll have an easier time owning those deplorable parts of themselves that they think don't belong there or they think that that shouldn't they, they should not have and and own them and reclaim them as as an essential part of the experience of sex and um i feel that no book is better equipped to do that than this one and i'm so grateful that that you wrote it and and that we get to share in your thinking um we're almost out of time but before we go what is each of you working on now Um, so I'm working on psychedelics at the moment. Um, I'm working on the the politics of the psychedelic renaissance and the way in which uh, psychedelic therapy, among among other forms of use of psychedelics, is uh, the, the kind of political implications of that and and what what we might hope for from from that. That is that's exciting. I'll want to hear about that when when that comes out. And Great. I'd be about, happy to talk to you about that. I'd I'd love to. And what about you, Tim? I've I've been I've just finished a, a new essay on viruses. I've been trying to think about the current state of our where we are in the pandemic, how the connections and the differences between COVID and HIV/AIDS and now monkeypox. So I have a new essay in a special issue of on viral theory coming out soon, and the essay is called "Barebacking in Restaurants." That sounds that sounds provocative. If if folks are interested in what you're working on and what you've got coming up, how do folks find you? Are you online? Do you have a website? I have a website at the the University of of, of Warwick, which is the easiest way. Oliver Davis Warwick, find me. <laughs> okay, okay. People should contact me at timdean one two three at gmail dot com. My my Illinois email is dean at Illinois. And you only have to think for a moment about what that means to have Dean at Illinois 
as your email address to understand that email that email account is a disaster. <laughs> Contact me at Gmail. Fantastic. Thank you. And I want to remind our listeners, I've been talking to Oliver Davis and Tim Dean, uh, authors of the book, Hatred of Sex. And this is New Books in Psychology. I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte. Tim, Oliver, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us on the show. It's been great.